0: Burrell Williams' hit Happy have been released, but the director of the video is still in custody. Police in Tehran say the online clip showing the women without headscarves and dancing with men hurt public chastity. You're listening to the news on RTHK.
1: Good morning, this is Ina Cho. Welcome to Money for Nothing. Chinese Antiques. Hong Kong's commercial property, rooftop urban farms and a global economy in perpetual frantic movement. That's what I've got for you in today's program. But first, here's a quick wrap up of the latest top stories. JD.com, also known as China's Amazon, has just raised 1.78 billion US dollars in New York after its shares were 15 times oversubscribed. US stocks advance overnight, Tiffany wrote 9.2% after quarterly profits beat estimates, and Fed Minutes said continued stimulus would not risk causing too much inflation. More market figures later. Michael Feroli, chief U.S. economist at J.P. Morgan Chase, talks to Bloomberg about the Fed, what the Fed discussed in their last meeting.
2: I think these minutes, uh, the main takeaway is they seem pretty comfortable with the outlook for both growth and inflation. They think uh, growth will rebound after the first quarter slowdown. Uh, and with the notable exception of housing, sound pretty optimistic on most sectors of the economy. At the same time, you don't really see much concern there that inflation is going to rise in a you know, dramatic fashion. In fact, they see wage inflation as being quite tame uh, and overall consumer inflation, uh, consumer price inflation being low. So yeah. I think the Fed sounds pretty comfortable here, you know, just being on hold for, uh, for as long as the eye can see.
1: And he also said Fed officials discussed offering more forward guidance, which he thinks will be helpful. Right
2: now, I think there's a lot of confusion as it relates to the dots that are released of the uh, individual participants' forecast and then how that relates to the FOMC statement. Uh, and certainly that can be improved in terms of guiding not only when the first rate hike occurs, but the pace of tightening after that. Uh, and then I think they also talked about the fact that, you know, there is this... N- Exit strategy or all these things that need to be done before they raise interest rates. And I think what you saw in today's minutes is a recognition that the market's gonna need a little better clarity on how that's gonna play out because you're talking about, you know, potentially massive programs here, trillions mm-hmm. of dollars that will be put in place, you know, perhaps twelve to, to eighteen months from now.
1: There was Michael Ferrelli, Chief U.S. Economist at J.P. Morgan Chase. Well, the ICAC here has been questioning Fang Fang, J.P. Morgan's former head of investment banking in China. The investigation is believed to be over whether he asked the bank to hire the son of Everbright Group's chairman, Rang Shuangning, in order to win the Chinese group's IPO mandate. The news was first reported by the mainland's Chai Xin magazine, and it has now been stood up by a number of international papers. It's taken 10 years, but they've finally done it. I'm talking about China signing a $400 billion gas supply deal with Russia. Dan Dicker of Block, an energy investment advisory in the US, tells Bloomberg what this may mean for gas prices. It's a very big deal because what it does is it changes the calculus of EU natural gas because we're talking about 60 billion um, um, metric uh, units of natural gas going to China. That's about half of what Russia supplies for the entire EU in 2013. Mm -hmm. So it's a very big deal if you remove that kind of piece of the natural gas puzzle from the supply into Europe. You have many, many issues. You have a need for fresh supplies from LNG that might come from Qatar, Mm -hmm. might come from Australia or it might even come from the United States. We're ramping up LNG here in the United States and uh, so uh, we're going to get a lot of uh, supply difficulties moving into the winter of 2014 and into 2015. Let's take a look at how Asian stocks are doing today. The Nikkei 225 has opened up 135 points or almost a full percentage point, to 14176. Australia's ASX index is up 0.1% to 5,409 points. Seoul's Kospi is up 8 points to 2,017. Earlier, the Dow climbed 1% to 16,533. And both the SP500 and NASDAQ added 0.8%. The S&P closed at 1,888. And the NASDAQ at 4,131 points. 10-year Treasury yield rose two basis points to 2.53%. And um, in Europe, the Eurostox 50 gained 0.7%, and the FTSE 100 was up 0.3% at 6.821. The Bank of Japan wrapped up a two-day meeting yesterday, and Chairman Kuroda gave no hint of further monetary easing in the near term, which lifted the yen to a -a three-and-a-half-month high. It's now trading at around 101.5%. Four against the dollar. Coming up in the show, Gavin Morgan, COO of Jones Lang LaSalle, will talk to us about the commercial property trends in Hong Kong and a unique venture on the roof of Bank of America Tower. Andrew Luke, investment expert and seasoned antiques collector, will chat to us about the sale of his ceramics collection at Christie's in London last week. That's after a look at the markets with Richard Harris, CEO of Port Shelter Investments. Good morning, Richard. And thank you for coming into the studio.
3: Hello, Enid. Always a pleasure.
1: Same here. So, wow, big news is uh, just now is the JD.com or China's Amazon has raised one point seven eight billion dollars in New York, pricing its shares at $19 apiece. I mean, the I suppose the surprise is that it has managed to get more demand than expected. It was aiming to price the shares at $16 to $18 apiece. So not only has it hit the top of the range, it has gone beyond. So pretty good news for Alibaba's upcoming IPO, eh?
3: Well, I think certainly good news for JD. You know, it's probably in uh, a sweet spot in terms of being not too too big, and uh, al- also uh, a good company. I think the issue that Alibaba will have is, of course, all the spotlights are on them. Uh, Everyone's looking at them. Um, People know the company quite well. Uh, It's owned uh, overseas. So I think there'll be a lot more uh, maybe critical uh, inspection on Alibaba, but I still have no doubt that they'll get it away.
1: Well, there's a big difference between the two companies in terms of business operation model, uh, size, and also profitability. JD.com has never made a profit (laughs) and yet it has managed to do this. I mean, does this uh, uh, suggest that uh, the market especially the dot-com market is getting a little bit too frothy?
3: Well, I think so. It almost seems to be a qualification, doesn't it? You know, when you look <laughs> at Facebook and Twitter that um, in order to be placed, you you shouldn't have any profits. Um, I think also that that means that the market, because it doesn't really have anything to go on, may well be pricing these things a little bit high. Uh, you can certainly see with global uh, operations like Twitter why uh, uh, prices should be uh, really off the scale. Um, JD may Maybe a question mark, but I don't think that JD pricing was necessarily off the scale. I think people have uh, a reasonable amount of confidence about where it's going to earn, uh, make its earnings. So I think that uh, it hit a sweet spot in the markets. Um, I suppose uh, that,
1: the, the model seems to be working in that this, you know, this Amazon model of, of owning, infantry and the distribution infrastructure. Um, it is generating a pretty healthy free cash
3: flow. It, it is. And the, the thing about that sort of business is that it's really necessary. It's the kind of nuts and bolts. So it's not going to go away. It's not necessarily flashy, but it's really crucially important uh, to the, the whole e-commerce business.
1: Now was more, there was more internet news overnight actually from the internet giant google it 's saying it wants to spend up to thirty billion u s dollars on foreign acquisitions, and also it said it wants to put ads everywhere. And I mean everywhere, from refrigerators to car dashboards to watches. I mean, I would hate that, won't you?
3: (laughs) Well, it seems uh, fairly scary to have these these things all over the place. But I think the thing is with um, Google, you know, if you've got these cash-generative companies, you've got to think what are you actually doing with the cash? And uh, clearly the sector at the moment to uh, invest in and something Google knows a lot about is is these very advanced um, uh, technological areas. So uh, it's a strategy that they need to do. The other thing is one does know, too, quite how much this is also driven by tax, you know, yes. because investment overseas... You uh, <laughs> uh, may want there's... to
1: just put the, keep the $30 billion overseas so it doesn't have to pay U.S. tax. The, <laughs>
3: that, that's right, and as we've seen with many U.S. companies, uh, including Apple, they have vast assets overseas, so they just can't bring back to the U.S. Uh, and eventually there will probably be some deal with the U.S. tax man about that. Um, but while that's going to continue, you know, with all this investment pouring out to the U.S has got to be a good thing.
1: Can you see Google investing in Alibaba?
3: I don't think so. Uh, I think that what Google will be looking for is technological, uh, leading-edge technological ideas of which they have a special um, knowledge about, something that will maybe fit into their business model, something that's really, really new because Google over recent years has been looking at, uh, if you look at Google Glass, you know, you've got some really Mm, leading-edge ideas um, in terms of, where they think the tech sector is going. So I think that what they're going to be looking for is is to put some money into particular ideas and, um, uh, you know, if they do enough of them, one of them will fly.
1: Uh, well, and another internet stock, Weibo, um which was spun off by cena um re- announced really disappointing results overnight um, Shares were down in after after um, after hours trading um losses widened to um forty seven point three million dollars I suppose they are internet stocks and they are internet stocks.
3: Well, I'm not so sure we, we should be as worried about things at the moment, you know, unless further news comes in. You know, we've also had periods of time when even companies like Google have had weaker periods of earnings. You know, these companies are, are growth companies. They are uh, pushing out very fast. Um, their costs at certain times do go up because they have to make big investments in big areas. And if you think about the facilitation and about the development of some of these IT companies over the last 10 years, it's extraordinary what they've done. Mm. Um, would, you, would, you,
1: would you advise people to to still um, hold on to their say ten cent stocks um, or do you think um, the peak has come and gone? Time to let go. I think it depends
3: whether you see yourself as a trader or, or an investor. As an investor, I'd be inclined to hold on because you know what you have to look at any particular moment in time in the investment markets is what are the darlings of the markets. Uh, back in the mm. 50s, it was cars, back in the 60s, it was TVs, uh, back in the 70s, you know, maybe a little bit earlier than that, it was airlines. It's tech stocks and leading-edge tech stocks and new ideas that are the darlings of the market at the moment. And it's very difficult and, I think, premature to look to come out of that particular uh, sector at this moment in time because they're the things that are hot.
1: They are still pretty young young companies. Now, another um, major bit of news from uh, this part of the world was the ICAC asking Fang Fang to go in for a coffee, as we say in Hong Kong. The um, The U.S. has been investigating what may be a widespread practiced by banks, i.e. offering highly paid jobs to the sons and daughters of influential Chinese people in return for deals. Um, This is not going to be the last we hear of it, is it?
3: Well, I can't talk uh, about any specifics, but, uh, y- you know, it's from time immemorial, investment banks have hired um, uh, young people whose parents may have done business with the company. And this goes right from the City of London, right to the U.S. Um, uh, and it doesn't surprise me at all that, that this is happening in Hong Kong. I mean, I think that in every life cycle phase, there's a room, maybe, the, the, that sort of happens. Uh, and there's also room a little bit later on where people just want people who can do the business. Um, We're in a stage at the moment where we've had a lot of initiation going on and relationships are very important in that sort of thing. But also as businesses mature, they need people with experience. And I think that maybe what we'll look in hindsight is say this has been maybe a phase that Mm. every market's gone through. um, Yeah, that's
1: probably true. But at the same time, I suppose it depends on what kind of evidence they've got, right? If it's a piece of evidence, say an email is reported, that It's it's not because he thought the son of um, the Everbright chairman was a particularly talented young man who would have a thriving career in investment banking, but he's doing it just because of that IPO mandate, and that's pretty damning um, uh, well under US anti-corruption rules right?
3: Well that's an accusation and of, of course all of these things are it is, in, yes, in, in the evidence. We haven't got any and, details um, from the ICAC. Uh, and, and you know once again it's not too difficult to uh, just point to uh, similar practice um, all, all over the world I, I, I think in general terms that it's a shame that there are a lot of um, hungry young people out there who may not have been able to get that particular job but as I said a moment ago I think that what happens in the long term is uh, experience wins out um, and that there are a lot of people whether they're related to influential people or or not um, who could easily hold these kind of jobs so um, uh, Mm. personally I don't really think it's uh, I think it's a storm in a teacup.
1: The China-Russia gas deal uh, it's a bit like investment, I mean, investment advisors telling, telling people to diversify, isn't it? <laughs> Russia wants to diversify away from a reliance on Europe. China wants to diversify its um, sources for energy. Um, it's a win-win, is it?
3: Well, in a way it is, but it's fascinating how it's come about. You know, this deal's been talked about for 10 years, and, and, and low within a month or two something happens. Um, only about half the amount of the volume uh, has actually been agreed on. Um, And it's going to be quite interesting how the Russians are going to maybe produce more or switch it from supplying Europe. Um, But the key thing, I think, the most interesting thing about all of these gas deals is what happens to it geopolitically. You know, the last thing the Chinese will want is to be beholden to Russia for the gas. Just at the moment, Europe's beholden to the Russians for the gas. Um, The Russians now are clearly quite worried that uh, Europe is going to... Uh, aggressively seek supply elsewhere, uh, mm-hmm. and they've come to the Chinese. Um, you've got to think the Chinese have probably got a pretty good deal.
1: Yes, it does look like, like, the, like they did. They, uh, uh, President Putin said they were very, very tough negotiators. Um, now, before I let you go, Richard, um, how are you going to help our listeners make money? What stocks should they be looking at? Which sectors, which markets in Asia?
3: Well, the best way to make money probably over the next three months is to go and lie on a beach, I think. And <laughs> this actually is a secret of investment, is that there are some times when you need to sit on your hands and just not panic. Um, and I think this is one of them. If you look at what the markets are doing in general, we're maybe making, breaking some highs in the US, but generally not. The market's finding it very, Difficult to be convinced to go higher. Um, The danger with that, of course, is that it may start testing lows. Um, We haven't got any particularly bad news out there, Mm. Um, but if you look at how the markets have been behaving probably over the last three, four, five years, you've had periods of relative stability and then a period of a bit of a shock. Well, Mm -hmm. um, I would say there's maybe a 30 to 40 percent chance of of a shock coming in uh, over the summer that'll see the markets down maybe five, six, eight percent. Um, not terribly unusual in terms of what we've seen over the last four or five years but I think that's possible now again if you're an investor you'll probably be happy to look across the valley if you're not you might want to look at um, you know lightening your portfolio a bit now and um, and Go buying a bit later on, but <laughs> all going on holiday. But uh, you know, shorting now to buy back later on is always very dangerous. You know, we think we're so clever when we do it, but we end up not buying back at the right price. So mm, um, um, I'm inclined torture. to say, just beware that there may be some uh, not particularly good news when you're on holiday. Uh, <laughs> but don't panic because it does look. And don't if you check look at
1: your emails, if you look, look at, at the how internet. the
3: smug the Fed seem to be at the moment, um, they're pretty happy with how the economies are going. Um, and I think that uh, that's, that's going to underpin the markets.
1: Great. Thank you very much for joining the, the show today. Thanks, that's, that's Richard Harris, CEO of Port Shelter Investment and a regular guest on this program. Let's say hello to our next guest, Kevin Mo- uh, Gavin, rather, Gavin Morgan, COO of Jones Lang LaSalle here in Hong Kong. Good morning, Gavin. Welcome to the show thank you very much. Now, before um, we move on to um, this very special project on the roof of the Bank of America Tower, I'd like to um, ask you a few questions about Hong Kong's commercial property market. Um, A few years back, Hong Kong was the most expensive city in the world to rent Class A office space. I don't know if the global ranking has changed that much, but rent has certainly come down in central and surrounding areas. So so how how much do people have to pay pay these days on average for you know a square foot of, of, of space in, in that area, in this financial district?
0: Okay. Um, well, in Central at the moment, uh, the average rent uh, is about $88, $89 per square foot. Mm-hmm. Um, but you make an interesting point about the cost of Hong Kong real estate, and, and you're correct again in that it's still ranked amongst the, uh, the highest from a commercial perspective in right. the world. But in choice in different districts that are very close to central um, at quite different costs, which, which makes it quite unique compared to some other cities around the world as well, and in, a, in a positive way.
1: Mm-hmm. And there's, I mean, there's a recent story in the S E M P saying that a lot of um, really wealthy Asian um, companies are moving into the top class A space, and um, while Western companies have moved out, you know, for example, they named Singapore's United Overseas Bank recently signing a new lease to um, occupy more than 30,000 square feet in Citibank Plaza. Um, do, do you agree that there is such a such a trend?
0: Uh, there's no question that there's a trend, uh, particularly um, uh, China-based organizations uh, coming into some of the higher-quality buildings in Central. Um, and uh, from a transaction volume perspective, probably being responsible in the market for some of the, the leading rents achieved by landlords over the course of the last 18 months. Uh, that's absolutely correct. Um, most of the multinational corporations, I mean I think it would probably be um maybe not a group that are looking for cheaper options or lower rents, but they're probably more mature and certainly based on years of occupation in Hong kong mm-hmm. uh, are larger and um, probably more longer developed organizations in the market and have bigger real estate portfolios as a result um, and you know are, are um, you know we're looking at how they can manage those portfolios to maximize efficiency.
1: Woo-hoo. Who do you think are the most um, aggressive landlords in Hong Kong in terms of um, um, how much rent they ask for and um, you know, sticking with pretty high prices, even though the market may be weakening somewhat?
0: Uh, look, they, you know, a, a great question, and as it was rather than being aggressive, I mean, uh, and as you know, real estate is very much a location, location-based commodity when it comes to values. So, I mean, typically the landlords in central are those that are able to achieve the highest prices and the the highest rents, and. You know, then within that group, um, uh, there are buildings uh, that uh, that are more modern and higher specification. Uh, you know, buildings like Two IFC, Cheddar House, Chung Kong Centre. Um, mm. TCB Tower, I mean, those are the types of buildings that tend to achieve highest rent primarily right. because they're in greatest demand.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, well, there's been a lot of talk recently, again, about Hong Kong's uh, property cooling measures, right, and right. whether the government should relax some of them. And then Chang ga the Secretary for Financial Services and Treasury, came out and said, oh, they will stay in place until the U.S. raises rates. And, you know, at the moment, we're not expecting that to happen anytime soon. Are you mm. disappointed?
0: well it's um i mean as a you know as a, a as one of the, the the leading agency businesses in hong kong we're always in in favor of any measures that uh, that that encourage transaction volume i mean that's our business but um uh, you know equally it's, it's you know it's also nice to see the um you know i suppose the market um you know regulated or um, you to see measures put in place to keep the market uh, in check to a degree, but um, obviously anything that promotes transaction volume is something that we're in support of.
1: Hmm. Sure. Um, now, okay, it's time to move on to a lighter topic. Perhaps Jones-Lang LaSalle has helped open an urban farm on the roof of Bank of America Tower in March. I mean, it's such a great idea, isn't it? Um, is it there's so yeah. many empty roof space or underutilized roof spaces around Hong Kong. So what's the, what's the challenges of doing something like that?
0: Well, it's um I mean, obviously, just getting all of the equipment um and everything that we need to sustain a facility like that up onto a rooftop of such a tall building, but um you know. I think you can probably understand the logistical challenges of doing that, but, uh, you know, it's a terrific way, particularly with Hong Kong being such a vertical city, I mean, it rises where most of the cities that it's typically compared with sprawl, mm. um, you know, and therefore there's so much opportunity around the city for, you know, other landlords and organizations to look at doing this, so I would, I would definitely, I would say that the challenges uh, in doing something like that do and not. so
1: who are, who are growing the vegetables, and, and what are they growing?
0: Uh, there are all sorts of different vegetables we 've got um you know, things like water spinach um, and you know they 're being harvested by a combination of a, a group um, from within the Jll office and the building management team at Bank of america tower so um, are
1: office office workers participating.
0: Uh, office workers from uh, from JLL uh, mm-hmm. participating but not office workers from the uh, not specifically from the, specifically the, from, the uh, from the rest of the building though no, it's a management building management led uh, initiative
1: and then the uh, who who eats who gets to eat the vegetables
0: uh, well those are distributed to um uh, to some charities in hong kong so right. people like uh, Sewers and uh, Sewers exchange um and uh, feeding hong kong are involved and um and time to grow um, and you know we partner with those charities to you know to make sure that uh, the vegetables are passed on to uh, that's to, such a
1: great idea and any yeah. plans to do that elsewhere
0: uh, yes we are looking at um uh, at some other facilities at the moment in fact we're evaluating some other facilities and we expect uh, more of these to to open or to uh, to begin cultivating um as we move through well this keep year. us
1: keep us posted Thank you very much for sharing that with us. That's Gavin Morgan, COO of Jones Lang mm-hmm. The time now is eight twenty-seven. Um, let's say hello to our next guest, Andrew Luke. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning, Andrew. Um, last week you managed to sell a collection of around 40 pieces of antique ceramics from the Qing Daoguang era. Um, Tell us how the sale went.
4: Um, The sell-through was 80%, so 32 of the 40 lots were sold.
1: That's pretty good.
4: Yeah, that was pretty good uh, because the overall sell-through rate of the entire auction, including other people's stuff, was only 67%. So Mm -hmm. mine was outperforming.
1: So what was the top lot that was sold?
4: It was... um, golden color familiar rose bow, a pair of them actually, um, it went for 130,000 pounds. Was uh, that higher than The estimate was 20 to 40.
1: 20 to 40,000? Uh,
4: 20, 20 the 20 to 40 was the estimate. Right, right, right. And it wow, went for okay.
1: Okay, well, um, I've seen a picture of it, actually. It's beautiful. I mean, the, the pair of bows are beautiful. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's pretty unusual, isn't it, for, um, for anyone to focus on Daoguang wear? Because, you know, Emperor Daoguang, he reigned from well, around 1821 to 1850. He didn't leave behind much of a legacy, losing Hong Kong to the British towards the end of his reign. Why did you choose to focus on ceramics made in that period?
4: Well, one thing was because my grandfather gave me a piece when I was like, five years old. Um, it was a, a rather large piece from Daoguang, so mm-hmm. that 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 kind of interested me um, since I was a little kid um, in that era. And and to be honest, at the beginning of the, of, of you know 1820, when Daoguang came to power, mm-hmm. China accounted for one one third of the global GDP. Wow! But at the end of it, she was uh, the world country. Mm-hmm. So there was big change. So there was still a lot of
1: wealth, even yeah. though the the uh, regime was in decline.
4: Well, it was because of opium.
1: Sure. And um, so, um, the yeah, but but China was buying the AOPM, not selling.
4: Exactly, mm. we were we were addicted. You know, the whole population was addicted, and productivity and everything went down.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, are you going to be buying more Da ware, or are you um, also collecting other categories?
4: No, I'm I'm focused only on Guang. I got more than 400 pieces. I'm the largest collector of Guang porcelain in the world. Um, right. And and this time was only because. I wanted to streamline um, my collection and reduce the repetition. Okay. So, so, you know, I will Um, continue to buy.
1: And very quickly, um, how is the uh, slowdown in growth in China affecting the antiques market from the perspective of a collector? Has it become easier to get things that you like?
4: Oh, yeah. Well, Well, the thing is, like, prices don't come down. They just stop going up. Sure, um, but this, it,
1: has it become less competitive in the, in the auction halls?
4: Not really, mm. not really.
1: Mm-hmm. I guess people are just getting more selective. I mm-hmm. know that a portion of your proceeds will go to charities in James Settlement. Yes. And um, so how much are you going to be able to give them?
4: Probably half of the proceeds.
1: Oh, right. Okay. That's pretty generous of you. And uh, thank you for joining Money for Nothing today. Thank That's, you. We hope to have you on the show um, to talk about investment next time. Lovely. Thanks. That's Andrew Luke of um, Luke's Asset Management. He was the founder and also the... Chief Investment Officer. That's it for today's Money for Nothing. Before I go, here's the weather. It's going to be mainly cloudy with a few showers and there will be isolated thunderstorms later. Maximum temperature is 31 degrees and you'll still need to carry your umbrella tomorrow because we'll be expecting showers. Coming up next, back chat. But first, here's the news with Janice Wong. Oh. A woman in Southern California who disappeared 10 years ago when she was 15 has contacted police to say she was kidnapped and forced to marry her abductor. Police say the 41-year-old man suspected of abducting her, Isidro Garcia, has been arrested on suspicion of kidnapping, rape and falsely imprisoning a minor. The woman reported her abduction after finding her
3: sister on Facebook. The BBC's Peter Bowes reports.
4: According to the police, the woman says she was kidnapped and sexually assaulted by